The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. China's done an unbelievable job of lifting people out of poverty. They've done an incredible job, I mean, far beyond uh, what any country has done. We were talking about 19, mid-90s to today. The biggest change is the number of people that have been pulled out of poverty by far. And we should all applaud that. And we should all feel good about it. And so there are, in, in the environmental leadership, today is very clear and it aligns completely with Apple's values. The, the Chinese uh, uh, the Chi environmental leaders, yes, government. Yes, mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're very fixated on, on uh, doing the right things to avert climate change. And this is something that means a lot to us as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we always try to do is find the areas where you can work together, find the areas of commonality, and then the things that you disagree with, take time to understand how somebody sees it. And also, if you can make billions and billions of dollars in this growing economy, do that too. This is Tim Cook, the, uh, the head of Apple. Nobody will stand up to China. That's from 2018 or 17, I think the date says. I, I played the clip for you earlier this week from Fauci saying that hey, we need dialogue. Of all of these figureheads, of all of these people, these talking heads, these, these CEOs, these politicians, can you, can you think of one who stood up to China? I think you probably can, and we'll come to that uh, after we open here. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is The Trumpet Daily, we appreciate you joining our growing audience. You can get to the live video stream of this show through our website, thetrumpet.com. Just go to thetrumpet.com forward slash live, and you can watch this program every weekday morning at 11 a.m. here in the central time zone of the United States. Our 800 number for those that would like to request any literature that we refer to today, that's 1-866-930-3024 if you're in the U.S., Canada, or the Caribbean. So here is this, this communist regime, China, building up a slave state, basically, certainly in the last two or three years, as they've locked entire cities of millions of people, it, just a, a hard lockdown, for months in some cases. And, and people like Tim Cook, Fauci, all of the politicians, both sides of the aisle, they just kneel before China. And it's because they're all on the take. But there was one individual. He didn't come from the political class, but he was certainly familiar with uh, the business world. And he could see. Think about what Donald Trump campaigned on all through 2015, all through 2016. I bet if there was one word he used more than any other, it was China. China. You know how he said it. China. Over and over again as he exposed the fact that we were being robbed. We were, our jobs were being transferred to China. Tim Cook says that the Chinese should be applauded 
for pulling people out, out of poverty. How about Bill Clinton? I played the montage yesterday from Joe Biden, who from 2001 to this day talked about how that we need to build up China. And they sure did a good job of that, even as they were able to line their pockets with money from China in return. Pay to play. Oh, yes. Go back and read some of the, the, the popular nonfiction books of the 1990s during the Clinton era. He obviously had a presidency that was filled with scandal. But he was also selling out the nation to China. And Donald Trump recognized this. And it went on for decades. Tim Cook even said, since the mid-90s on to today. What's the, what's the great transformation? We've, I'll leave aside what he said about climate change, the fact that China is the biggest polluter on Earth. But let that go. Here he is saying that China should be applauded for bringing some, so many of their people out of poverty. Donald Trump comes along in 2015 and says, look, look, Pennsylvania, these Pennsylvania factory towns, they shouldn't be ghost towns. We should bring these jobs back. He campaigned on that, and he won in the Rust Belt. That's what carried him to victory in 2016. 2020, of course, they stole it. But, but a little bit of history on this. And, and as I said earlier this week, you see people lining up on one side or the other. There's not very many on the side of standing up against the abuses the unfair trade policies or practices. They're all just lining up to heap praise on China. Or, in the case of this week, since there's the popular uprising, to just stay quiet. Don't say anything this week. Because of the, the protesters being violently put down from one city to the next. So keep quiet. We're still making our billions. But when things settle down, then we can come forward like Tim Cook did there a few years ago, and talk about how wonderful China, the, communist, the communist government in China is. He's making, hand, he's making money hand over fist in that, uh, in that country. And that's why he can look at China and say nothing. And even when there are disagreements, you notice what he said there at the end of the clip? Even when there are disagreements, we want to try to understand them. We want to try to hear them out Try to see it from their perspective. Do you think he takes that approach when he thinks about Donald Trump? Or, or just look at Elon Musk. Here, here, this company that Tim Cook heads, they're threatening to ban Twitter from the app service on Apple devices because they don't want Elon Musk influencing them. We'll see how that, that plays out. I know Tucker's been going head-on against that this week. But that's the spirit that we've seen play out these last several years, just blot out the MAGA movement, blot out Donald Trump, blot out anyone that would let the other side talk. And then you hear them talk about the communist government in China, Xi Jinping's government, and they, they talk like that. They hate Donald Trump. What would they say about Donald Trump? Speaking of him, this is from a UN address. Uh, I can't, we'll probably post the date up on the footage. But listen to what Donald Trump said before the whole world, before all of these leaders, including leaders or representatives from China. The United States lost over three million manufacturing jobs, nearly a quarter of all steel jobs, and 60,000 factories after China joined the WTO. And we have racked up $13 trillion in trade deficits 
over the last two decades. But those days are over. We will no longer tolerate such abuse. We will not allow our workers to be victimized, our companies to be cheated, and our wealth to be plundered and transferred. America will never apologize for protecting its citizens. The United States has just announced tariffs on another $200 billion in Chinese-made goods for a total so far of $250 billion. I have great respect and affection for my friend, President Xi, but I have made clear our trade imbalance is just not acceptable. China's market distortions and the way they deal cannot be tolerated. As my administration has demonstrated, America will always act in our national interests. One of a kind. That's Donald Trump from 2018. Look, she, she is my friend, but uh, I've made it clear to him, this trade imbalance, it has to change. He, he brought up there that China, since it joined the WTO, I just Googled that, it was in 2001. All of these, these trade imbalances, these trade deficits in the case of the United States, and then these manufacturing, the United States has been plundered. And the ruling class has received money from China in return so that, the, so that China, so that the CCP can plunder the United States and take away all those manufacturing jobs. And he came back in and he campaigned on this. He won in 2016 because of it. You can see why all the dots are being connected, aren't they? How that Fauci, who was funding gain of function, even as he was warning, even as he was warning at the tail end of Donald Trump's presidency, actually it was at the, the early part of it, I believe, 2017. Remember when he was saying we've got to brace ourselves for a pandemic in the next four years? So they were helping to fund it over in China, the Wuhan lab. And then he was basically out there predicting, yeah, there's going to be a pandemic. It's perfect, isn't it? It just worked perfectly the way they planned it. China wanted him out, and the radical left here in the United States wanted him out. The communists, in other words. You've got to get rid of that man, Donald Trump. He's the only one that confronted it. You think about, what was it, Peter Schweizer's book, I think it was, about all these politicians that... Uh, that were on the dole, that were receiving payments from China in some form or fashion. It's, all, it's scandalous, isn't it? It really and truly is. And yet the media, they just brush over it. They just brush over it. They're letting these, these corrupt, lawless actors get away with it. And, and of course, America, the American people, suffer as, a, as the end result. Listen to, speaking of Donald Trump, and, and how they want to destroy him. We've seen so much evidence of this since the midterms. Republicans lining up to take shots at, uh, at Donald Trump now. First it was the midterms, Mitch McConnell withdrawing funds or not providing any funds from any MAGA Republicans, uh, backing the rhinos. And then more recently, this narrative that came out from that, that lunch or dinner meeting that Donald Trump had with Kanye West, I think that was a week ago. And they're still on this. Many of them in the, in the news media, they're still on this. 
using this to try to smear Donald Trump and to say, of all things, that he's an anti-Semite, that he hates Jews. He has a Jewish son-in-law. He, his, his daughter has converted to Judaism. And so he has Jewish children now, or grandchildren. He helped to move the, the, the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. He's the most popular politician in Israel. And yet, that does not stop the smear campaign at all. Listen to Mitch McConnell yesterday at the beginning of remarks he made before the press, clip four. There is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. This is what Politico said about those remarks. Uh, McConnell begins his weekly presser unprompted right off the bat by addressing the Trump-Kanye-Fuentes uh, meeting. Unprompted. He doesn't even have to be asked the question. The, the, the mere fact that Donald Trump would have lunch with Kanye West means that he's highly unlikely to ever be elected as president again. Trump is finished! says the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. Trump is finished. So he's joining on with all the others, both sides, as I say. Trump standing virtually alone, just like my father says in America Under Attack, and the latest Trump magazine, Ready for War. That's the January edition. If you don't have a subscription or if you don't have America Under Attack, again, call our operators and request... Your free subscription to The Trumpet or the book, one 930 Notice what my father wrote in that Ready for War uh, article, The Next Trumpet. It says, so it's pretty clear that McConnell and his supporters were more concerned about defeating the MAGA movement than defeating Democrats. It wasn't really Republicans versus Democrats in, uh, in the midterms. It was the MAGA movement against everyone else. And if it was MAGA, no funding, no support. My father says it's astounding that these establishment Republicans would rather live under the the tyrant Barack Obama than support senators who back and support Donald Trump. How can you deal with that kind of division? It says such senseless decisions are political suicide. What is wrong with their minds? What are they thinking? Do they hear themselves? Yeah, China should be applauded. And if we have a few differences, we should try to understand them. We should try to sit down and talk to them, view it from their perspective uh, concerning Donald Trump. Trump, he's to be banned. Put, he is to be censored. He had lunch with Kanye. He, he's finished. He is, for the final time, He is finished. We're never going to see him again. In my judgment, he's never going to be elected to president again. Says the man who, about Robert Byrd, he said, more than anybody else in any of our lifetimes, Robert Byrd embodied the Senate. McConnell said he loved and respected Robert Byrd after he died. 
I forget what year that was. The little bio here from Sam Bird was born in 1917. In 1940, he recruited 150 people to start a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in West Virginia. In 1944, Byrd said he'd never fight alongside Negroes in battle. Rather, I should die a thousand times and see old glory uh, trampled in the dirt, never to rise again than to see this beloved land of ours become degraded by race mongrels, he wrote. A throwback to the blackest specimen from the wilds. He said that in a letter. Eventually, the, the KKK Grand Dragon encouraged Byrd to get into politics, and he did. And when he got there, McConnell, Biden, all of them, they loved him. Oh, yes. They loved and respected him. What a background. Now, I'm sure Byrd uh, regretted some of his comments from earlier in life. But, but you wanna, are you seriously wanting us to talk about associations with people that have said things about Jews or blacks or whoever? Because there's quite a few other politicians that have some pretty shady connections, including, including the dear leader. But he gets a pass, you see. Or it's covered up in the case of the Jeremiah Wright photo. Or, or excuse me, Louis Farrakhan. <laughs> I mean, it was both. He was going to Wright's church for 20 years. And then he was hugging it up with Louis Farrakhan in 2005. I mean, the whole Congressional Black Caucus was. And then they conveniently hid the photo for, for the duration of Barack Obama's presidency. Unbelievable. It's amazing. Listen to this. I forget where it is in my notes. Listen to this from, uh, oh, which one was it? It's the, the video clip of, that has, that has um, the clip of, yeah, clip nine, sorry. I want to turn to some news on, on Louis Farrakhan, the leader of the Nation of Islam. Uh, he went on an anti-Semitic rant uh, in, during a major speech uh, a week ago yesterday. Here's, here's a little bit of it. He talked about their grip in Hollywood and how the Jews were responsible for all of this filth and degenerate behavior that Hollywood is putting out, turning men into women and women into men. Despite the anti-Semitism and uh, homophobia uh, inherent in that clip, um, several leaders of the Women's March um, uh, were uh, are supporters of Farrakhan and have not uh, condemned him. Uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus who have met with him were asked for their comments, and one of them, Congressman Danny Davis, not only refused to denounce Farrakhan, uh, he said the world is bigger than him and his Jewish question. Uh, why is it so tough for some people to condemn uh, a rabid anti-Semite who is also a misogynist and anti-LGBTQ. That's from 2018. Now, the photo with uh, Farrakhan in Congress, he's hanging out there with the Congressional Black Caucus, including a new senator named Barack Obama. And Obama was right up next to him. Big smiles on both counts. Listen to Tucker. I think this was also from 2018. He sat down with the photographer who snapped that photo, and then it was confiscated soon after, never to see the light of day until Obama was, conveniently enough, out of office. This is uh, from 2018, clip 11. A photo of Barack Obama with the Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan was not released until now. 
because some believed it would have, quote, made a difference to the former president's political career. Uh, former President Barack Obama, before he was president, with um, Louis Farrakhan. You took that picture. Where was it? It was in the Congressional Black Caucus meeting room. Actually, I was looking at the picture, and if you look very, very closely, you can see on some of the uh, people, they have a sticker. This is HC9, which is the one of those caucus rooms in the basement of the, yes. of the uh, Capitol where meetings are held, and that's where it was taking place. A staff member from the Black Caucus called me and said, we have to have the picture back. And I was kind of taken aback. And to but why would people from the Congressional Black Caucus or the Nation of Islam headquarters in Chicago not want that picture to come out? Well, I don't think it was so much the Nation of Islam, but rather the Black Caucus. Uh, perhaps they um, sensed the future. This was 2005 now. There were no, uh, he had just been in the office a few months. Um, but the idea, and in fact, he had people from the Nation of Islam working on his staff in his office in Chicago, his Senate staff. But I think as people considered the ambitions, the thought was Minister Farrakhan and his reputation would hurt someone trying to win acceptance in the broad right. cross-section. of did, did, So was um, Louis Farrakhan or members of the Nation of Islam, were they offended that President Obama wanted to distance himself from them? Some were. Many were. Many were angry. Many were hurt that not only did uh, Senator Obama uh, denounce Minister Farrakhan, he rejected him. So just like with uh, Jeremiah Wright, they hang out, they're good friends, but then when it's campaign season, you got to distance yourself. you got to create a little bit of distance, make sure you get reelected, and then everything's back to normal. That's the way it works. That's the way it works on the side of the radical left. For the other side... All you got to do is try to create a narrative and then go with it and smear away. NBC this week basically laid out the fact that this lunch meeting with Donald Trump last Wednesday, that it was an ambush, that it was a setup. It says here, just two days before Thanksgiving, Donald Trump was planning to have a private, uneventful dinner with an old friend, Kanye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, or I guess he goes by Ye or Ye now. It says the two had arranged to break bread Tuesday night at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club in Florida after weeks of private phone conversations as uh, Kanye lost lucrative partnerships. i got to read some of the blue text over on my screen. i got to get that toner fixed. I've got to add some blue toner to my printer at home. Sorry and became a mainstream cultural pariah, speaking of Kanye, for his anti-Semitic remarks, according to those familiar with the talks between uh, the two men. It says here, but Trump may have been walking into a trap in Mar-a-Lago's gilded halls, one that leveraged his own penchant for spectacle and showmanship against him. Ye arrived, or Kanye arrived with three guests, including uh, white nationalist and anti-Semite Nick Fuentes, so I want to preface all this by saying I don't know anything about this guy, Nick Fuentes. I don't know very much about Kanye West either. And I suppose they've probably said or done some horrible things. But Donald Trump does have an acknowledged relationship that with Kanye West that goes back years. And if you read other press reports about this lunch, he didn't know he was bringing guests. And he felt like Kanye was troubled and maybe he could give him some encouragement. He's a pariah now, like this NBC article says. 
Trump has uh, since says he didn't know Fuentes or his background when they dined together, a claim Fuentes confirmed in an interview. But others at the crowded members-only club figured out his identity. News of the meeting prompted an avalanche of criticism from some Republican rivals and allies of Trump and his then-week-old presidential campaign. He had announced his presidency, and here's something we can, we can grab hold of and attack him with. I mean, we can just cudgel him to death with this. He's finished. What poor judgment. He's a, is he a racist? He's a racist. They all jumped on board. One longtime Trump advisor who didn't want to go on record criticizing his preferred candidate said it was clear that Fuentes' presence was part of a headline-grabbing setup. This is NBC News. Basically admitting it was a, it was a setup. It was a, an ambush, a political ambush. The master troll got trolled, the advisor said. Kanye punked Trump. It's all a, a, just a, a setup. And then, of course, the media, all the communists in the media, including these weak rhino Republicans, they rushed to the microphone. Listen to Joy Reid from yesterday, I believe, clip two. You know, some people come out and say, well, that's horrible, you know, and say he's a terrible person. They don't want to talk about Trump. They say, but Trump's not an anti-Semite. They, they carve out of that. Trump's not a bad guy. He shouldn't have had him at the table. But the problem is the rest of what Fuentes just said. Uh, to me, that doesn't sound any different than fundamentally what the party platform is. They don't. I, I just I, I, do, I see a very small degree of difference between what he believes and what they believe. So she's probably one of the most extreme, saying that basically Fuentes, the anti-Semite, again, I'm just going by what they say he is, he's just like Republicans. So obviously Trump would want to sit down with him. That's, a, you know, it's guilt by association. He would want to sit down with, uh, with him because they, you know, they think the same way. NBC says, Ian Annopoulos, I guess that was one of the other guests, a former Breitbart editor who was banned from Twitter, in 2016 for inciting a racist campaign against a comedian, told NBC News that he was the architect of the plan to have Fuentes travel with Kanye in the hopes of slipping him into the dinner with Trump. It was a setup. It was a set and this is what this is what the media for seven days now has been talking about, in some cases, nonstop. Sundance over at Conservative Treehouse. He says it's classic Saul Alinsky tactics at play here. Um, he writes, as NBC has now outlined in detail, a trio of dubious characters leveraged Trump, President Trump's previous support for troubled Kanye West as an opportunity for an intentional smear campaign construct by Milo Yiannopoulos, Nick Fuentes, and Kanye West himself. It says, Mr. West, now known as Ye, intended to make trouble by bringing uninvited guests along to carry out the operation. It says, the media and political opposition gleefully latched on to the successful targeting operation in an effort to smear Donald Trump. In typical Alinsky fashion, the goal is to controversialize the operational target. Senator Mitch McConnell followed up today with his own pylon supported by his Senate leadership. There's McConnell, all the Senate Republicans behind him. They're all on board with it. They're all quite happy to join in on the smear job. 
This is uh, the former vice president, Mike Pence, earlier this week, clip five. President Trump was wrong uh, uh, to give uh, a white nationalist, uh, um, an anti-Semite and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table. And uh, I think he should apologize for it uh, and he should denounce those individuals uh, uh, and their hateful rhetoric without qualification. Uh, I, I think the president demonstrated uh, profoundly poor judgment uh, in, in giving those individuals a seat at the table. And as I said, I think he should apologize for it. He should denounce them without qualification. Do you wonder if any of these people uh, said anything, like even remotely as close to that, with respect to Barack Obama and his associations? Uh, which, you know, it's not just Jeremiah Wright and Louis Farrakhan, Frank Marshall Davis, the mentor. Uh, Kali, I forget his name, the one that uh, really had some uh, angry, hostile writings against Israel. They weren't, if they, if they didn't hate Jews, they certainly hate the Zionist state of Israel. Barack Obama was surrounded by him. Bill Ayers? All those troubling associations? I mean, we wrote a lot about it back in 2008 when, when Mr. Obama was campaigning. What about Joe Biden? He's been entrenched in D.C. politics for four decades, more than that even, I think. I mean, it goes back a long way. Let's just put it that way. Listen to what Kamala Harris said. This was when she's campaigning against Joe Biden. So uh, when it's the opponent and you're trying to beat him, then it's anything goes. Then you can bring up the troubling associations. This is clip six. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Then that little girl lost the election and immediately joined on with this man to serve as his vice president, an illegitimate one at that. But that's the way, that's the way that it works. I'll leave it to you to just focus in on the subject of judging by fruits. I suppose all of us probably have had <laughs> some action or interaction with persons or people that have had troubling or, or, or have had a background maybe that, that is troubling, troubling associations, let's say, but, but just leaving those things aside for a moment or a lunch or whoever, the fruits, just look at the fruits of Donald Trump's presidency and the people that he helped and the jobs, let's say, that he brought back to Pennsylvania, the, the help that he provided Israel helping them move their capital to Jerusalem. It's just preposterous to say or to think 
that he hates Jews all of a sudden. But it's classic Saul Alinsky, and what's especially shameful is watching people in the Republican Party who wouldn't dare say anything like what Mitch McConnell said or Mike Pence said, they, would, they wouldn't dare say anything like that with respect to anyone on the other side. Joe Biden, Barack Obama, certainly not Barack Obama. Glenn Beck criticized Obama during his presidency, saying he was racist, and he had to come out and apologize a few days later. I mean, the blowback. He had to apologize. You can't call the dear leader racist. You can't say that hanging around Jeremiah Wright for 20 years had any kind of influence on his thinking. It was just church. You, you, you'd like to see, instead of caving in to these Saul Alinsky tactics, it'd be nice once in a while to see a Republican with the courage to stand up to it and to expose it. for NBC just laid it out that it was a hit job. NBC just exposed the fact that it was a setup, an ambush. And yet we're supposed to just play along. And Joy Reid, she's still running with it last night. Yeah, Fuentes and the Republican Party, the same thing. In Ready for War, this article coming out in the next uh, trumpet, my father talks about the fact that it's war. And really, the war is over the, the machines and how the elections are run because you have so many weak Republicans in place like Bill Gates at the in of the of Maricopa County in uh, places of of power and influence they're controlling the elections i mean even that clip i played for you from Barack Obama back in 2008 he acknowledged that they'd probably do pretty well in Ohio because they controlled the machines my father makes a pretty big point of that uh, in the uh, forthcoming January issue of the Trumpet Magazine, but over at Conservative Treehouse, Sundance makes an, uh, an important point, I think, that a lot of these, these election controversies, there's quite a lot of it going on in Arizona right now. There's one, there's one county in Pennsylvania that hasn't yet certified, so you can add that county together with the one in uh, Arizona that I mentioned uh, yesterday. In any event, he, he says that a lot of these, these people defending the Republicans who've had it stolen from them, the ones defending them, the, the lawyers, the attorneys, they're weak rhino Republicans, and they don't fight. They don't fight. They're just too quick to give in. Sundance says, with the diminished trust level of voters toward the RNC combined with a pattern of history of weak legal defenses, then failing by intent starts to become part of the larger possibility, failing by intent, knowing that Mrs. Harmeet Dillon, she's on Fox from time to time, and usually she sounds pretty solid, but she's a lawyer representing the interests of Rona McDaniel. She's the rhino heading up the RNC, the, the Republican Party. It says, the lack of legal effort, vigor, and pattern of consistent legal losses toward the MAGA Republican candidates starts to take on some clarity. You can begin to make sense why they eventually have to capitulate because they're surrounded by lukewarm defenders. Listen to Laura Logan on, uh, I think this is on Lindell TV. She's talking about all the problems, and we're just seeing more and more of it. At least if you watch this program, we discuss it. But the rest, I mean, they move on. You move on the day after and you start talking about Donald Trump and lunch meetings that he had. 
instead of all this corruption in Maricopa County or in Pennsylvania or wherever. This is Laura Logan from last night, clip three. This is a moment now for people to see them for who they truly are. We now are in no illusions about the Bill Gates of Maricopa County, right? He's shown his true colors, and so have the rest of them at the Board of Elections in Maricopa, over the objections of their constituents, over the objections of the GOP locally, over the objections of people all across this country. They have certified an election that the truth is they have absolutely no way to vouch for those results. It is a complete lie. And, and, and they have been put to shame by Cochise County, right, in Arizona, and put to shame by another county in Pennsylvania, counties that had the courage to stand up and say, we're not going to certify an election that we can't stand by. And the real truth here is that there isn't an election official in America who can certify an election that is run by machines because they don't speak code. They don't go into those machines. They don't test them. They don't have the vaguest idea what they're talking about. When they tell you they certify that election, they're lying, 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 lying through their teeth. Be transparent because you know what I discovered when I worked on this for seven months straight? Is that every step of the process is involved with fraud. That's the truth of our elections. There's no part of our elections that isn't subject to fraud. And it's time to stop lying to ourselves and lying to each other. There's no part of our elections that, that's not subject to fraud. But as she pointed out at the beginning of that clip, what all of this shows, you know, contesting it after the fact, I mean, the certification process, that's in place, isn't it? So that you can contest. But these weak, cowardly, lukewarm, in, in many cases, Republicans, as soon as you get to certification date, got to rubber stamp it. If you don't, I mean, you, you're guilty of a felony. You can't, you can't go back and check. You, you can't give a, an official audit. You can't examine the machines. You can maybe go through the motions for a week or two, but as soon as certification day hits, I mean, you've got to go forward. It doesn't matter if there's any corruption. That's, that's the way they think. And of course, as I said yesterday, they, they just wait out the clock. Again, Saul Alinsky. These are communists. They, they cheat and then there's not enough time to do anything about it. So the weak Republicans representing the ones that got cheated, they don't fight hard enough. Sundance brings that out in this piece. He says the RNC is in somewhat of, of, of the driver's seat in this contested election dynamic. Unless the candidate can afford on their own to fund the legal challenges to the situations they encounter, they are essentially dependent on the RNC to assist them legally. This is, this is the RNC headed up by Rona McDaniel. She's cut from the same cloth as McConnell. It says here, if the RNC intentionally torpedoes the legal effort, the candidate is without support, a support mechanism. So you have McConnell on the front end intentionally torpedo the campaign effort by not funding the, the MAGA movement candidates. And then you've got the RNC on the other end that, or, that torpedoes contesting the election. It says, did, what ha did, did that happen in Arizona? Was MAGA candidate Carrie Lake a victim of what Machiavelli called lukewarm defenders? It says, has there been a, a seemingly transparent pattern of poor legal pushback and challenges from the RNC in recent elections? You decide. Has there been a weak pushback? Ha have, has Donald Trump and now Carrie Lake have they been surrounded by, by lukewarm defenders? There's a few exceptions. Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, 
I didn't know this about the gal, Rep. Harmita Dillon, representing Carrie Lake. But if she represents Rona McDaniel, that's not a, speaking of associations, that's not a very good one as far as uh, representation is concerned in court. You've got to have people who are prepared to fight, to fight. And uh, in this world, if they're not going to fight with some of the same tactics that the other side is using against them, they're going to be just overwhelmed. Look at the way they're, they're going. They're, they're, for McConnell to get up and say what he said yesterday about Donald Trump, without even being asked the question, this was his opening remarks. It shows you that he's the other side. He's capitulated. I mean, it happened long ago. He's on the take, just like so many around him. And they just want to get rid of Trump, and they just want to get rid of MAGA. And if, uh, if they can do that, then, you know, going by what they say and do, you would think will be a Garden of Eden utopia at that point. Just get rid of the bad orange man. Some pretty good points, though, though made by uh, Sundance with respect to lukewarm defenders. It makes me think of my father's book, The Last Hour, where he talks about those who, during the lawsuit over Mystery of the Ages, they were neutral. They, they really didn't get in there and help, help us in the fight. God gave us the victory anyway. But you had the Worldwide Church of God fighting and using all of these evil tactics to try to keep mystery of the ages buried and blotted out. And then you had us on the other side, David, going against Goliath, a small little church, certainly in 1997. That's when the lawsuit started. And then you had these tens of thousands of others that were just weak, Neutral, lukewarm. That's how God characterizes the Laodiceans in, uh, in Revelation 3. If you'd like to request The Last Hour, my father's book, the 800 number, 1-866-930-3024. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is The Trumpet Daily. When we come back, we'll conclude our program with our Bible study segment. The Trumpet Daily. Every particle of human suffering, unhappiness, misery and death has come solely from the transgression of God's immutable law. Obedience to God's law liberates us from all unhappiness, pain and suffering. It frees us from captivity, from spiritual slavery. Obeying God's commandments guarantees a life overflowing with joyful abundance. For much more on this subject, request a free copy of The Ten Commandments. When you make your request, don't forget to enroll in the Armstrong College Bible Correspondence Course. This 36-lesson course is a distance learning program that will help you to get to know your Bible. Each month, you will receive a lesson that guides you in discovering the answers to life's most important questions, all from your own Bible. Your enrollment has already been paid for. Enroll today. Email your request to td at kpcg.fm or visit thetrumpet.com. The Trumpet Daily. In uh, the Epistles of Paul class here at God's College, I've been going through uh, 2 Corinthians over the last uh, couple of uh, classes, and I just wanted to touch on some, some verses in chapter 1 that I found to be very encouraging 
the other day, and I think I might have even included a couple of these verses in uh, Monday's Bible study segment. But we'll start here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. Just to give you a little bit of background, Paul had, had written 1 Corinthians probably a few months earlier, and that was very, very corrective. He had to put a, a young man out of the church, um, and he told the congregation, look, you're, you're being puffed up with self-righteousness by just tolerating or letting sin dwell in your midst. I mean, you've got to get rid of sin. You can't just let it hang around or you'll be, you'll be devoured by it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, said Paul. So he's going right through this long letter, the longest letter that he wrote, at least the longest one that was canonized. And uh, one after another, he's addressing division and a party spirit and, and all kinds of, of problems that had come into the church from the world. This was a, an area that was just steeped in all kinds of pagan practices and perverted practices. And so Paul sends the letter in. He gives the correction. It was read in services or at the congregations. And then he's coming into this second letter, and he, he's wondering how they had received the correction and how they responded to it. And so here in verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Yes, God does administer correction, and we need it. And, we, and this shows that God loves us. Read Hebrews 12. He cares about us enough to correct our ways, to show us where we've gone wrong so that we can get back on the path, the right path, spiritually speaking. And when we do, God's arms are open, and he's there to give us all comfort, encouragement. Verse 4 says, "...who comforts us in all our tribulation." that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. It says, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Pass it along, in other words. God, Paul says, God comforts us, we in the ministry, when we're tried and tested. And one reason that he, he puts us through those trials and tests and then provides us with comfort and encouragement is so that we can do the same with others so that we can really draw on those experiences and help others through their trials, their tests, and then provide them with comfort and encouragement as well. God delivers. God, Look, Paul says, God has helped me. God has delivered me through a fiery trial, many of them, and he's always been there for me. He's always been there to provide comfort. All comfort, it says in that, third verse. I'll read to you what it says in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, speaking of comfort and the fact that Jesus Christ and experience, or in the case of Christ, experience really does count for a lot. He came in the flesh, God in the flesh, and he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So he knows what it's like to fight, to resist against sin. Hebrews 5 or sorry, Hebrews 4 and verse 15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then it says in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly 
Come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We do need grace. We do need help in time of need. But God says go boldly before that throne. Go boldly before the throne of God and draw strength from that example of Jesus Christ or from the example of the Apostle Paul. Paul says in verse 5, we're back in 2 Corinthians 1 now, it says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So we share in his sufferings. You can see similar admonition and instruction in Romans 8, verse 17, where we suffer together with Christ, but we're also going to be glorified together with him. And those sufferings and those difficulties and those trials I mean, Paul talks about it in this very letter, 2 Corinthians. You can fast forward to chapter 12 and see, that, and see that he asked for God to heal him. He had a thorn in the flesh, and he went to God for healing three times. And God told him, look, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. Just soldier on. Just fight your way through it. He was learning, some, no doubt, some valuable lessons. By, by waiting patiently on God's promise of healing. And God was there to provide him with encouragement. Look, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Look at how much I've blessed you. Look at how much I'm empowering you. Look at how much I'm guiding you in this end-time work. He thought it was the end. You can see that in his writings. He had a sense of urgency because of that. We all ought to. God wants us to be urgent. He wants us to be bold as we go before his throne of grace. There's only so much time left. Even when you look at it with respect to physical uh, life, it doesn't last for very long. Of course, here we are in the final generation, the last generation where Jesus Christ's return is near. And that ought to make us all the more urgent in our work for God. Verse 6 here it says, And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. See, either case, either way, whether we're comforted or tried or tested, it's for you. God's really putting us through sometimes fiery trials, but, but in any case, experiences where we can help others I mean, you see this, this, it's a very encouraging chapter, as I say, but the thing that really jumped out at me the other morning when I was studying it is how the, you see the principle of God's love. You see how that these experiences, these lessons, these opportunities, God, God gives us all of this so that we can give to others, not so that we can just hoard it to ourselves. There, there were a lot of people, speaking of the 1990s and, and fighting for mystery of the ages, there were a lot of people who really were offended by the fact that we went to court to, or, or, or we started printing the book, then they filed a lawsuit against us, and then we went into this six-year struggle to fight for the literature. And in most every case, the people in our church at that time, it was very small. They had come out of the Worldwide Church of God, and they already had copies of Mystery of the Ages. They had their personal copy from Herbert Armstrong's days. They had the correspondence course. They had in the incredible human potential. And those that said, you know, you're wrong to try to print, to distribute more. You've got your copy as it is. Why do you need any more? Well, so that we can give it to others. 
Of course. We want to spread the wealth, spiritually speaking. We want the whole world to have this. Mr. Armstrong himself said he wanted to reach the largest audience possible with it. There's the spirit of God's love right there. Mr. Armstrong wanted to give to the world everything that God had given to him. Verse 7, it says, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also be of the consolation. So this was a congregation that was struggling through some sufferings, <laughs> some severe correction. But he said, look, the same God who corrected you, he's going he's gonna to be quick to forgive upon repentance and change. And as it happens, this young man that had to be put out of the church, he was invited back in. You can see that from 2 Corinthians 2. He was invited back in upon repentance and change. He was deeply repentant for those sins. Verse 8, it says, For we would not, brethren, have you be ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. This is the verse I read to you the other day. Pressed, pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. I mean, that's pretty low. That's Paul and his fellow ministers thrust into the arena. Wild beasts, evidently. Verse 9 says, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. Paul thought he was surely going to die. The sentence of death. He had his Daniel in the lion's den moment. All that he could put his trust in was God. Only God could deliver him. And God did. And this is what God's trying to develop or build in us. Faith and trust in God. Total trust in our maker. Just put our lives in his hands. It's given to man once to die. Everyone's going to die once physically. But after that, the resurrection. We've got to set our minds on what happens after the immortality that God's offering to faithful saints if they stay the course all the way through to the end, if they build this kind of faith, faith in God, just knowing God said it is enough, just knowing God promised it is enough. Well, there's more that we could get into, and perhaps we will at a later time, but we are out of time for today's show. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to email the program with feedback, the address is tdatthetrumpet.com. Thank you for joining us on today's show, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.